in person. Those of you who are able to, but I'm glad we can still continue to do the live streaming. Last week, we looked at the apostles being persecuted. At the birth of the church, there was wonderful growth. There was many people, or there were many people coming to the Lord, coming to salvation, but the evil one was not idle, and persecution soon followed. We looked last week at what the apostles suffered. It was a varied kind of persecution. There was imprisonment, there was beatings, there were threats. And then for Stephen, there was even the loss of his life. But we saw also how the disciples reacted, these early disciples reacted to persecution. Among other things, there was prayer, there was continued boldness, there was continued obedience to God. There was rejoicing even at being worthy to suffer persecution. And there was prayer even for those who were doing the persecuting, that they might be saved and they might be forgiven. We saw that with Stephen's death, really a wave of persecution began and was about to envelop the small, growing church in Jerusalem. But today's lesson, we're going to see actually how the gospel spread in spite of and even because of the persecution. Far from limiting or halting the spread of the gospel, this terrible persecution that arose actually spread it further. We're going to see in today's lesson how the Samaritans first received the gospel from the, um, from the, new, the new church and how they even received the Holy Spirit. We'll also see how the gospel to Ethiopia got its first start. And my prayer is that from today's lesson, we will learn much about God's sovereignty and his will for us as evangelists, as those who share the gospel of Jesus. Today's lesson might be a little bit short. We might end maybe 15 minutes early. So just be aware that there's not as much material to go through. But oftentimes I'll say that and then we still go end up using the whole hour. So who knows? Let's pray. My Lord God, thank you for this word, this very encouraging word about how you are always sovereign, even over persecution and the spread of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged. I pray that we would be emboldened. I pray, Lord, that we would be committed to faithfully following you as disciples, no matter the cost, trusting that you will do good in each situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to jump right back in where we left off last week. At the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen had just finished his spirit-filled defense against accusations of his blasphemy, and he died to the glory of God, stoned to death by the very men that he sought to witness Christ to. But now let's read Acts Chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. And this shows us what immediately followed. Acts 8, verses 1 to 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, 
those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. All right, we stop right there. Let's look at, or let's continue our study of this section of scripture with observations first. Back in chapter 7, what was Saul's role in the stoning of Stephen? That's right, he was watching or guarding the cloaks of those who were expending, or they were physically exerting themselves in stoning Stephen. But now we see in this chapter, he's an active participant in persecuting the church. He's really leading it. It says he's ravaging the church. This is a pretty intense term, devastating, creating havoc. He's entering the houses of Jewish Christians, house after house, and he's dragging them away, both men and women, and putting them in prison. Now, what is it that happened to these imprisoned Christians? We get a little bit of insight into that when we consider Paul's later testimony in Acts 26. If you just turn over there, Acts 26, verses 9 to 11, Paul is giving testimony about his earlier way of life, and he gives further description as to what he was doing to Christians. Acts 26, verses 9 to 11. Paul testifies, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things, hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So what is it that's happening to many of these apprehended Christians? Some of them are being put on trial. And the verdict of the trials is that they're guilty and worthy of death. Paul says, Paul at that time, Saul at this time, when they were being tried, I cast my vote against them, that they would be killed. Others, it's Paul testifies, he punished in an effort to try to get these Christians to blaspheme. Probably meaning he's trying to get them to recant. Trying to get them to fall away from their faith in Christ and declare, I don't follow or believe Jesus the Messiah. I mean, this is evil. This is horrifying. What a son of Satan. He's like a demon, this Saul, Saul of Tarsus, trying to kill Christians, trying to get them to blaspheme God, abandon Christ. It sounds like an agent of the KGB or the Spanish Inquisition. He's rounding up believers, torturing them, and having them put to death. And all in whose name? Whose name? 
in the name of God. This is his zeal for God. How dare these blasphemers do what they do? They must die. It's the same thing that the Pharisees had said. A very evil man. Acts 9 verse 1 describes Saul as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. A terror to the early church. But isn't it amazing that in God's sovereign purposes, it's this very man who would become saved and become a great witness of Christ's gospel to the world? That is the amazing transcendent ways of God and his mercy. But still, what a trial for the early church. Yeah, Denny. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. That's a good point. He does say that what he had done, Paul does later say that what he had done was done in ignorance. And when Peter, one of his sermons, speaks to the crowds and he says, you crucified the Lord, though you did it in ignorance. So there is that. You could argue that all unbelief is ignorance of a certain kind. But you are right to point out the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, they have been convicted multiple times of what they did, and their reaction to it was actually to kill those who were convicting them rather than to repent. So, yes, perhaps we could say there's a difference with, with Saul. Certainly, there is a saving difference in God's elect purposes. Uh, Roy, looks like you want to say something. Sure. That's a good question. I probably have to think through this a little bit more. Just because somebody in one view has uh, good intentions does not mean that what they're doing is not evil. Certain, right, right. And even, even if he thinks he's honoring God, in a way, the Pharisees did too. Yes, we can talk about how ignorant did they feel, how much did they know that they were doing evil, all people who do evil justify themselves. I mean, even people who, who are on the level of Hitler in terms of their blatant evil, they think they're actually doing good. I mean, Hitler thought he was doing good for his people and for the world and his, uh, his aggressive expansion for Germany and his, his destruction of the Jews. So I do recognize what Paul says in, in Timothy, but... Because there's no good thing that one can do outside of Christ, even what he sees as righteous action, even as zealous action for God, the God of the Bible, it was actually evil. It was drawing on the evilness of his heart. His heart was not yet changed, and the only thing that can come forth from an evil heart is evil. 
Now, there's a sense that he was ignorant. I think perhaps you could say that, that that's true of all people who do evil. But I recognize that Paul, he does make a distinction. He says, the Lord had mercy on me because of what I did. I was ignorant. So kind of all that to say, not really, not really quite sure right now what to do with all that. I know that what he was doing was evil. I know that even if he felt justified at the time, he was not. But I also know that, as he says, he acted in ignorance. So I don't know if that really answers your question. <laughs> yeah. But God intended to save this man, which is incredible. Yet it was still a great trial for the church. And he was just the tip of the spear of this wave of, or he was just the beginning of this wave of persecution. And what happened to the believers as a result of this new, terrible, great persecution? They were scattered. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. I remember Judea would be southern Palestine, Samaria, the northern area, where old Samaria used to be. Note that not all the believers were scattered. It says that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. And Acts 9, 26 to 30, makes clear that there are other disciples beyond the apostles in Jerusalem. So it's not that everybody, literally everybody scattered, but many of them did. And it's most of the apostles who stayed behind in Jerusalem to continue to witness and to minister to those who, who did stay behind. There were some who managed to bury and lament over Stephen, but most were scattered. Now notice the, or Paul, oh, a question. Good question. I'm not really sure. Uh, you're right. You're right to point that out, that the actual right of capital punishment was reserved for the Romans. They would have to get Roman permission. It may be that they actually got Roman permission. Remember, the Romans want to give the Sanhedrin autonomy, and they, they want the Jews to manage their own affairs. And it's for this reason that Paul later gets permission from the high priest to pursue Jews in foreign cities. It seems to be that this was part of the Romans giving the Jews their autonomy to deal with their own people. So did they get the Roman permission to put these people to death or did they just eschew that that rule and decide to lynch these people? I don't know. It does seem that they're putting putting Jews to death one way or the other. Roy, you want to say something? Yeah, that's true. So Roy brings up that we do see later in a different area of the world, but still this idea of you Jews, you judge this religious issue yourself. And maybe that the Sanhedrin said, look, we have some normal rules we, we follow, but this this heresy is so great that we need to we need to act more quickly. 
we don't know. But certainly it it appears that Christians are being put to death. You're welcome. Now, in spite of all this, even because of all this, we see a result of this scattering in verse 4. It says, therefore, so as a result or consequence, what were the scattered ones doing? This is, of course, back in Acts 8. They were going about preaching the word. And that is, they were declaring the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. And verses 5 to 8 give us an example of this gospel declaration involving a certain man named Philip. This isn't truly the first time we meet Philip in Acts. He's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the seven men chosen to serve and meet a particular practical need for the church. Stephen was one. Philip was one. He's later called Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21. But notice where Philip goes. He ends up in Samaria. Now, what do we know about Samaria? That's right. So, okay. Yeah, so you said a number of things that are true. We're talking about the city of Samaria, but that would be representative of the whole land of Samaria. And it was made up of Samaritans, who, Paul, you, you rightly point out, they are mixed race. They would be a mixture of Jew and Gentile. This goes back to when the northern kingdom was destroyed and pagan peoples were brought into the land. So there was a mixture of blood. But more importantly, there's a mixture of religion. They are not Jews in the sense of those who lived in the south and that went to Jerusalem for worship. No, they were a little more syncretistic. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They took some uh, took some differences from the Jews in the south and it was mixed with paganism. We should remember that the Samaritans were actually conquered by the Jews in the intertestamental period when the Jewish kingdom broke away from I believe it's the Seleucid Empire. Then they began to reestablish themselves and invade the surrounding areas. They conquered Edom in the south, but they also conquered Samaria in the north. And in Edom, they forced the Edomites to convert to Judaism. But when they tried to do the same thing with the Samaritans, the Samaritans refused. They would not convert to Judaism, and they resented the Jews in the south very much. And as you point out, Paul, there's much hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, not only because of the blood differences and the religious differences, but also because the Jews had actually conquered the Samaritans and the Samaritans would not submit to Jewish religious authority. So tons of hatred between these peoples. They would try to avoid one another. And certainly the Jews looked down very much on Samaritans. Now, you might think with all this background, would the people of Samaria be a ready audience to the message of a Jewish evangelist. But Philip goes anyways. He proclaims Christ to them and notice the reaction. There is rapt attention from the people. With one accord, they were giving attention or giving heed to what he said and the signs that he was performing by the power of God. These signs included the casting out of demons and healings. What was the result Verses 7 and 8, they rejoiced. They rejoiced. I mean, what a contrast to what we see at the beginning of the passage. The gospel is presented in Jerusalem, and there's a murderous persecution that arises there. 
but the gospel is presented and hated half pagan Samaria, and the people give it utmost attention and respond to it with joy. That's a good question. Did Was there a seed already planted? Had the Lord prepared these people even through Jesus' ministry to the woman at the well? That apparently was a different town in the region of Samaria, not necessarily this city, though Samaritans from that town or people who knew Samaritans from that town might have interacted with them. But we'll come back to that question of why does Samaria turn so readily? Let's move to the interpretation step. Just two questions I want to focus on here. First, How is it that these new believers from Jerusalem, under threat for their lives, probably less than a year old in the faith, they went proclaiming the gospel freely and boldly throughout Judea and Samaria? How's that possible? It can only be, Dwayne. Yeah, so they've definitely received good teaching, but this does come down to this is the power of God's new creation in a person. This is the Holy Spirit. This is not what men would do naturally. This is God at work. And this might surprise us. We might think that new believers, they're they're just going to cower in fear. They're just going to, they're not going to be a witness for Christ. They're just going to wait for this storm of persecution to blow over. Maybe some of the seasoned saints will stand. Maybe the apostles, but these other believers, I mean, we can't expect anything from them. But what did the apostles say when they were being persecuted? We must obey God rather than man, and we cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. These new believers have taken these truths that they've heard from the apostles to heart. They've given up their lives to follow Christ. So why back down now? Should they shy away from the essence of what it means to belong to Jesus? I know they too are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the boldness that comes with it. So this is, a, I think, a reproof against the notion that only seasoned believers can stand for Christ, face persecution, or be effective witnesses for God. Let's not sell the power of the Holy Spirit short. Yes, they even in the short time that they were with the apostles in Jerusalem, they received good teaching. But let us also remember that even the faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus said, can move a mountain. If someone has understood the gospel well enough to be saved, I mean, truly saved, then by God's spirit, they are equipped to stand and share that message with others. You don't need to know a ton about the Bible to be a steadfast follower of Christ and a great witness for him. A new recruit can stand just like a seasoned soldier can. And sometimes, sadly, they can stand even better because it's the old guard that sometimes takes its gaze away from Christ into the things of the world. But those new believers, they... They have a real clear perspective. And we want to recapture that if we've moved away from it. That's the first question I want to look at. The second one is, as uh, we were alluding to already, why was Samaria so receptive to Philip's gospel witness? What's the answer? 
ultimately, it's it's God's sovereignty and the work of the Holy Spirit. We can we can when it comes to receiving the gospel, we can analyze people or groups of people as to how receptive they they are or might be. But in the end, it's God who decides when and where revival is going to take place. He's the one that arranges and prepares the soil. We might think that the best place for the gospel to go would be Jerusalem. After all, that's what that's where the most spiritual Jews would be. And truth be told, there was a great harvest in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, so far in the book of Acts, and we're going to see this continually in the book of Acts, is actually the site of the greatest opposition to the gospel. Not just for the apostles, but in Jesus' life too. Jerusalem was a great site of resistance to the gospel. Meanwhile, Samaria it may have seemed like a poor place for gospel seed. I mean, these people hate the Jews. But you know what? God shows us that it was a field ready for harvest, just waiting to be gathered in. We can misjudge, even in our own day, the readiness of a person or people for the gospel. Now, the key here is God's sovereignty, because we can look at different factors and, and say to ourselves, oh, you know what? This is probably going to make the person more receptive. But let's remember the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is able to take anything that might be an advantage to the gospel and turn it to a disadvantage. Maybe Christian upbringing. We say, oh, they were raised in a Christian home. Certainly they'll be more receptive. Actually, experience shows us that many people use their Christian upbringing as a way, as an excuse not to receive the gospel. They say they're already saved or they um, they become disenchanted with the Christian message. Or maybe we look at education or affluence as advantages, but sin can turn those too. And we might look at the opposite, hard times. Oh, you know, things are going so poorly in their lives. Surely that'll make them receptive to the gospel. Well, maybe, but sometimes sin will take that as a reason for the person not to receive the gospel. They, they resent God. They say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. He's not helping me. So sin can turn anything into an excuse to reject the gospel. But God, on the other hand, who is greater than sin, he can take anything that looks like a disadvantage and he can make it into a blessed avenue for the gospel to pierce the heart. God is the one who ultimately is in control. So what should we do? If we don't know or can't tell very easily who's going to be receptive to the gospel and who's not. How should we respond? Say it again. Yeah, share it with everyone. Scatter the seed widely. You never know what kind of soil it's going to land on and where it's going to grow. God does. He's the one who will prepare the soil, but we go out with a wide sowing arm. How many times have you heard or have you seen... Somebody who seemed like just totally far from God is the one who comes. And the person who seems so close just never seems to, never seems to make that leap of faith. The Lord knows, but we just go out and scatter. That's what Philip did. I don't know what he was expecting when he went to Samaria, but he was shown that the Lord was going to work mightily. Yeah, Danny. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just as you were saying, Danny, he, he's just looking to be obedient to the Great Commission. And that's the same for us. We are to be going out into all the world, all the world, not just the places that we think are going to be most receptive, and share the gospel. And we'll see. We'll see what God does. He's got his people. He's got his people marked out, the flock that he will gather in. Now, these Samaritan believers were later formally affirmed as 
a true part of Christ's church. In the middle of Acts 8, we're not going to read it, it describes Peter and John visiting Samaria from Jerusalem and laying their hands on the newly baptized believers, and the Holy Spirit then came down upon these believers visibly. Thus, the dividing wall between Jew and Samaritan, these two groups that couldn't stand each other previously for centuries, that dividing wall comes crashing down. Just as Paul says, it always does between Jew and Gentile in Ephesians 2.14. No, the Samaritans are not quite Gentiles, but the concept still applies. Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. We're also seeing quite literally what Jesus promised in Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus, one of the last things he says to his disciples is, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Some have said that this is an outline for the book of Acts, because have we seen witness of Christ in Jerusalem? Yes. Witness in Judea and Samaria? We're seeing that now. So what about the remotest parts of the earth? Well, not quite yet, but it's coming. In fact, we see it starting in the end of Acts chapter 8. Let's now go to the latter portion, verses 26 to 40, and see what happens there. Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So we got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had gone to Jerusalem, or he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I, unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? I'm going to skip over verse 37. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. All right, let's observe this section of scripture. Philip receives special command of the Spirit to get up and go down a certain road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Philip has apparently traveled back to Jerusalem since his mission in Samaria. And the text specifically tells us that this is a desert road. By the way, this would be the same Gaza that we would think of as Gaza today, same area. And we know where Jerusalem is. But he's going down a desert road. What does a desert road entail? It's going to be 
hot and uncomfortable. <laughs> Probably. And maybe not that well-traveled, because who wants to go out into a desert if you can take another way? But the spirit has commanded him to do it. Philip doesn't ask questions, at least not that we know of, and he obeys. And what do you know, he encounters a very specific somebody on the road, a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, where's Ethiopia? Well, roughly where it is today, though Ethiopia, the kingdom of Ethiopia was bigger back then, is basically right below Egypt, towards the eastern horn of Africa. So this man is from Ethiopia, which makes him a foreigner and Gentile. We get some more details about this man, though. First, he's a eunuch, meaning he's probably been castrated so that he could not have children. Often in those days, government servants who frequently interacted with females of a royal family were castrated so that those servants could be trusted around the royal women and would not present a threat to the reigning male dynasty. So this man is a eunuch. But we learn his specific function. He's in charge of all the queen's royal treasure. This is clearly a high position of great trust. He's basically the equivalent of today's secretary of the treasury or the minister of finance for Ethiopia. More poignantly, though, we learn that this man has just been in Jerusalem for worship and is on his way back. So what does that tell us about this man? He's moving towards Judaism. We can't necessarily say he's a Jew, first of all, because he's a eunuch and also because he's uh, uh, identified as a foreigner. But he is certainly a God-fearer, with some aspects of Judaism even taken into his life. We're going to meet more of these kinds of people as we move to the book of Acts. These what are often termed as Gentile God-fearers. They've embraced some aspects of Judaism, though they haven't actually become Jews, which would... Uh, entail the right of circumcision and wholesale adherence to the law of Moses. But we can see that this man has embraced at least part of Judaism because he's gone up to Jerusalem to worship, probably for one of the religious feasts that's prescribed in the law of Moses. But according to the law, how far can a foreigner and eunuch go in worshiping God? Danny. No, he would not. First of all, foreigners can only approach as far as the court of the Gentiles, so the outer, outer portion of the temple. But Deuteronomy 23 says, Deuteronomy 23 says that a man with defect to his genitals may not even enter the assembly of the Lord. So here's a man who is seeking Yahweh, but according to Yahweh's law, he must be kept at arm's length. But Isaiah once prophesied something Interesting about such a God-fearing man. Not about this man specifically, but this kind of man. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 verses 1 to 8 says this. Isaiah 56, 1 to 8. Thus says Yahweh, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial 
and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Now, that's really interesting. Isaiah was saying, even for those in his own day, foreigners and eunuchs who are seeking to join the Lord, there is coming a time where God is going to gather those people even more intimately to himself. For his temple will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And that's in the background of this meeting with this Ethiopian eunuch. So this man is returning from worship in Jerusalem, and he's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading something. Now, we might get the impression that this man is alone. Indeed, the passage doesn't mention anybody else besides Philip and um, Philip and the eunuch directly. But one would not think that a man of such important station would be setting out alone, not even with an accompanying servant or two. After all, chariots could hold more than one person, and he could travel with an entourage. Moreover, verse 38 says, the man ordered the chariot to stop. And that is a very curious phrase if a man is all alone. After all, he's not commanding Philip or commanding himself. He's at least with one other person, but there could have been many more. It could have been a caravan. The eunuch is very likely, almost assuredly, not alone. Now, it just so happens that this man is reading the prophet Isaiah and a very particular passage of Isaiah. Now, Philip doesn't know this at first, but the Spirit gives Philip more supernatural direction by telling Philip, go up and join the chariot. Philip runs up and he realizes that the man is reading from Isaiah. Now, how could he know that? Well, it's because the man's reading out loud. Remember, in ancient times, almost everybody read out loud and prayed out loud. It's It's a very modern notion to do this silent prayer and uh, silent reading. They didn't do that back then, or not very often. So he hears him reading Isaiah. And Philip figures he'll strike up a conversation with him, perhaps a gospel conversation. So he asks, do you understand what you're reading? And that's a very good question to ask. Uh, It's a way to get into a kind of spiritual conversation. No question is perfect, though. And we could imagine how the eunuch might have resisted Philip's invitation to spiritual conversation. In pride, the eunuch might have answered, of course I understand. Don't you know who I am? He wouldn't want to look bad in front of Philip or in front of his other servants. Or in pride, he might have answered, get lost, I don't know you. But his answer is quite revealing. The eunuch's answer is quite revealing of the man's humbled attitude before God. He instead says, when asked, do you understand? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? I, I need help. You're a Jew? Come up here and help me make sense of this. Now, Philip could not have known that this would be the man's response. He knew that the spirit had directed him out here for a reason, but he didn't know what would happen. And yet we see again, God paved the way. Now, what passage is it that this eunuch just happens to be reading? This is Isaiah 53. We've looked at this passage together. Isaiah 53 is very explicit in prophesying about Christ. And the Philip asks the question, 
or not Philip, the eunuch asked the question, of whom is this writer speaking, himself or someone else? Well, Philip couldn't have hoped for a better question than that. When Philip began, it says, beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to the man. Now, what does the phrase beginning at this scripture indicate? He didn't stay in Isaiah 53. Of course, he explained that passage, but he assuredly went to other portions of Isaiah, perhaps even Isaiah 56 that we read, and even outside of Isaiah. As this God-fearer would have been familiar with other Old Testament scriptures, Philip explains how Jesus is the Christ according to the Old Testament. He is the one prophesied. He fulfills what the Old Testament declares. Now, verse 36 says they came to some water. That's interesting. Water in the middle of a desert? Though it's true, desert do feature oases. Apparently, this wasn't just a little bit of water. It was quite a lot, as we'll see. Now, verse 37 is in brackets in your Bibles, and I didn't read it because the verse is not in the earliest and best manuscripts of the book of Acts. That means it is likely a later addition. This is not something that Luke wrote originally by the Holy Spirit. It was most likely an addition from a copyist who wanted to make more explicit what made the eunuch ready for baptism. Because verse 36 goes right to verse 38, and there's no mention of this eunuch actually saying, I believe. And so this copyist wanted to make it more explicit. Because Jesus has made clear what kind of people are baptized. Believers, namely those who have become disciples. He said, make disciples and baptize them. So for this man to be baptized or to even ask for baptism, what must have already taken place? He must have believed. He must have believed Philip's message. Now, that's not stated explicitly, so this copyist wanted to add that in, but it's a, we can infer it even without verse 37. So they go down into the water together. Philip baptizes him. And notice it says they came up out of the water. So that's why I say there must have been a, a fair amount of water for them to go into. Both of them go into it. Both of them come up out of it. But then what happens to Philip? The spirit of the Lord snatches him away. Philip disappears. But the eunuch doesn't seem too taken aback. He goes on his way rejoicing. In fact, that sudden miraculous disappearance, what would it have confirmed to the eunuch? This was clearly a man of God, and this encounter was from God. The Lord put his seal on this whole exchange, and that was a great cause for rejoicing. This man who was seeking the Lord and yet fell arm's length from God, he receives clear affirmation from the Lord that um, that this is the truth about God. So Philip disappears, and then I like what verse 40 says. He found himself at Azotus. <laughs> That's a very unique experience, I'm sure. Where am I? Oh, okay. <laughs> He's in Azotus, which is another, another name for Ashdod, a city in the Old Testament, and it's still a city today, actually. It's about 20 miles north of Gaza on the coast of Palestine, on the coast of Israel. It's between Gaza and Tel Aviv. So Philip finds himself there, and what does he do? Well, he continues to travel and preach the gospel. And he eventually ends up in Caesarea. This is probably Caesarea Maritima, the provincial capital of Roman Judea. It was another coastal city, actually north of Azotus, past Tel Aviv. So he probably makes his way up the coast, continuing to preach to the different people that he meets. 
All right, we've made these observations. Let's go to interpretation once again. Three questions I want to consider this time. First, what did the Ethiopian eunuch do next? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But what is it that disciples of Christ do? Even new disciples of Christ. They follow the Lord, and that means they share him with others. To be a disciple is to be a maker of disciples. So it is very likely that this man became the first gospel witness of Christ to Ethiopia. I mean, he's already been a witness before his entourage, however big it was, by being baptized before them all. And so likely he brought the gospel back with him and, and shared it there. There would be others who would go to Ethiopia, but he would be the first. Now, should we follow Felix, Philip's example of evangelism? Well, of course, but with some qualifications. We are empowered by the same spirit as Philip. We ought to have the same boldness and love that Philip did, and that caused him to speak to others. Notice, both in Samaria and with the eunuch, Philip did not have any relationship with the people before he shared Christ with them. That's not to say that it's not wrong to develop a relationship before you share Jesus. But understand that it is possible to share Christ with people that you don't know very well, even people you've just met, if God so provides the opportunity. We see Philip doing it here. Moreover, we see Philip explains Christ from the scriptures, according to the scriptures, which is what we ought to do as well. So Philip is an example for us to follow. But we have to recognize that Philip is also unique, different from us in some respects. He was given supernatural gifting that we don't receive today. He has the ability to cast out demons and heal instantaneously. Moreover, the Spirit tells Philip literally what to do in certain situations. Now, despite the claims of some today, the Spirit does not do that anymore. Or rather, the Spirit does that in a different way. He speaks to us through the word that has been revealed, the word that the Spirit actually wrote, not with new commands and revelations. If you want to know what the Spirit wants you to do in a certain situation, just read the word. Consider the word. That's how the Spirit will guide you. Now, what about that phrase that's sometimes used in the New Testament, being led by the Spirit? Aren't Christians to be led by the Spirit? Philip clearly is led by the Spirit. Shouldn't we be led by the Spirit too? Well, yes. But understand that that phrase, as used in the New Testament letters, doesn't mean the same thing that it means here. Every time we see the phrase or the, the command or the exhortation to be led by the Spirit, does anyone know what the context is? I'll show it to you. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Two places where this phrase is used specifically. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Romans 8, 12 to 14. Paul writes, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So what's the context of this phrase, led by the Spirit? 
It's sanctification. It's putting to death evil deeds and walking in holiness. We see the same thing in the, in the other passage that uses the phrase led by the Spirit. Turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verses 16 to 18. Galatians 5, 16 to 18. Notice how similar this is. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So same thing. Being led by the Spirit means being led into righteous behavior. There's a conflict between the old man and the new man, the dying flesh and the new life that is in the spirit. And he says, you're no longer being led by the flesh to do evil. You're now being led by the spirit to do righteousness. Yield to the spirit. Don't continue in the deeds of the flesh, but manifest the fruits of the spirit. The spirit's leading is leading you towards holiness. So if you want to be led by the spirit, you you follow the Spirit's desires, which is to obey God. That's why I say, again, the Spirit's guidance to us today comes through His Word, because that's how we know what God desires. We read His Word. That's what the Spirit wills for us. That's the Spirit's desire for us. It is our sanctification. So the leading of the Spirit that we sometimes see in the Gospel with Jesus and that we see in the book of Acts, that's a little bit different. This is part of the unique ministry of the Spirit at that time that confirmed these special witnesses of Christ as being from God, even though the New Testament scriptures had not yet been written. So does that mean that we should ignore any compulsions that we feel regarding praying for people or witnessing to them about Christ? Well, no, I'm not saying you should ignore those things, because that's what the scripture says you should do. By the Spirit, or the, your desire to do those things, is in accord with the Scriptures. So I'm not saying you shouldn't, shouldn't embrace when you feel compelled to do those certain things. But recognize that the Spirit's will for us is a little more complicated than just uh, declare the word to everyone in every single situation. We're also commanded, do not put your pearls before swine. We're commanded to be, Jesus commanded his disciples to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So you're going to have to exercise discernment. It is the will of the Spirit that you exercise discernment in different situations. Yes, you be bold. Yes, you be, be loving. But you also exercise discernment as to, am I putting pearls before swine? We should feel a compulsion, a drive to share Christ with people, but according to the guidance of the Spirit in the Scriptures. So yes, we do imitate Philip. We should imitate Philip even though recognizing he, he has some unique aspects to his ministry that we do not have, and the church does not have. One more question. Let's consider again God's sovereignty. Clearly God's hand is, was all over this spread of the gospel. In response to the people of Samaria, the arrangement of this meeting between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So was the wave of persecution then an accident? Even just a sad tragedy. No, of course not. It was no accident. Yes, there were tragic aspects to it, but no, this was actually good. 
It's just, of jo- it's, it's just as Joseph said regarding his adverse circumstances in Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Isn't this exactly what we see in Acts chapter 8? And it's like what Paul writes in Romans 8, 28. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, God had always intended that this persecution would come. And in his transcendent and good way, he even intended, he purposed, that some believers would glorify God by suffering persecution, suffering imprisonment, and even some suffering death. And yet he also purposed that others would scatter and declare the gospel to yet unreached people. The evil one may have felt that he was scoring mega points in this chapter against God. Ah, look at all these people that I'm hurting and discouraging and imprisoning and even killing these Christians. But no, this was all going according to God's plan. Even Satan's schemes are not outside the plan of God. He's purposing it for his glory and his people's good. So there is a principle for us here. What may appear like the greatest tragedy, an insurmountable obstacle, a titanic hindrance to God's purposes, especially in salvation, is actually purposed by God to bring about his good plan. So for you, whether personal, familial, or national crisis, realize that whatever God has provided in your life is so that you can better glorify him and be a witness to the world. So don't waste the circumstances that God has given you. We often think that God answering our prayers for relief from a certain difficulty or his blessing us with prosperity, that's what's going to make us a great witness. But actually, most of the time, it's your faith under fire, your joy in the midst of sorrow, your steadfastness in the face of tribulation, that will be the greatest witness of Christ to others. So embrace that. Let God have his way. Trust him. All will turn out to your good and his glory in the end. Now we're already talking a little bit about application, but let me put to you more formally some application questions as we wind down here. And what do you know? We didn't end early. (laughs) Uh, That's the way it goes. Okay. First, do you trust in appearances or trust in the sovereignty of God? I mean, this passage highlights these concepts for us. When it comes to provision in your life, do you look to mere appearances, what it looks like is going to happen? Or do you embrace that your God is sovereign and will provide no matter what the situation looks like? Or when it comes to the fitness of others to receive the gospel, do you look at appearances or do you look at the sovereignty of God? Or even the fitness of yourself to declare the gospel. Oh, I'm nobody in the church. I'm just a new believer. I don't know that much about the Bible. I clearly can't share the gospel. Are you looking at appearances or do you remember the power and sovereignty of God? Now, yes, you should grow in the faith. That will make you more effective. But remember that he's the one with the power. Second question, do you desire to be Christ's disciple and witness no matter the costs? I've put this question to you before, but remember the words of Jesus. 
If any man wants to come after me, he must first take up his cross, deny himself, or deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a cost to serving Jesus. Do you see that it's worth it? Do you embrace that? He also says, he who seeks to save his life, that is, hold on to it in this world, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses it for my sake and the gospels, he will find it. He'll save it. Do you believe that? Jesus also said, do not lay it for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay it for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Where is your treasure? You know that famous quote from Jim Elliot, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Do you desire to be Christ's witness no matter the cost? That's what it means to be his disciple. And then one more question. Are you a witness for Christ in spite of your trials, through your trials, and even because of your trials? Remember, as we see here, God means these trials for your good. And he means them for his glory. His grace is sufficient for you, just as it was for Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but whatever it was, it was extremely painful. He asked for it to be taken away, and God said, I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is perfected in weakness. Would you like the Lord's power to be perfected in your life? Then... Allow him to make you weak, make you dependent, put you in a situation where you say, God, this is so hard, it's so difficult. How will I ever make it through? God, I need you. That's where God says, you're right where I want you to be. This is where I can put my glory on display. You will go through some hard times. You might be going through them right now, but they are for the glory of God and your good. Glorify God through that trial. Whatever type it may be, that's God's will for you. Well, we're out of time for today. If you have other questions or comments, you can email me. But next week, we'll look at the salvation of the Christian killer, Saul. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this encouraging word. You are sovereign. Lord, even through trials and persecution, and you intend to glorify yourself through them. Often, God, it's for the spread of the gospel, ironically. But Lord, even where you allow, you allow your church or your gospel to be diminished, even removed, you are glorifying yourself. We thank you, God, that your church will never be fully removed until you come. You promise that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You establish your church yourself. So God... Help us to be faithful until you come. Help us to be those slaves that will be commended when you come. God, we can only do this by your spirit. And Lord, sometimes you have put us in very difficult trials, but you are good through that. Lord, I pray, God, that we would not miss the opportunity to glorify you through those things. By faith, God, embracing you as a true disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome. I'll see you next week.